I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I went to see your mother. She said she'd appear at the pardon board here, and if you want her to. I like being alone with you. You're looking real good to me. Look at you. Death is breathing down your neck. You're playing your little mad on the make games. I'm not here for your amusement, Matthew. Show some respect. Why well, should I respect you? Because you're a nun, you with that little cross around your neck. Because I'm a person. Every person deserves respect. You might remember that clip from the movie Dead Man Walking. It's the story of a man on death row in Louisiana and the nun who accompanied him on his journey, both spiritual and physical. That nun is Sister Helen Prejean, who wrote the book on which the movie was based. Sister Helen's experience on death row made her one of the best-known and vocal opponents of the death penalty in the world. She continues to counsel inmates on death row, as well as the families of murder victims. Her most recent book is called River of Fire, about her own spiritual journey. And I think when you meet someone with a big, beautiful life, the question is, what gave her the courage? And what can we borrow from that for our own lives? Sister Helen, I'm so delighted to have you as a guest. I'm delighted to be here, Kate. This time is going to fly by, so let's get talking. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> you grew up in a really warm, very Catholic family in Baton Rouge, and you chose at a very early age to become a nun. As a historian, I'd like to think I know a lot about Catholicism, but... Until I read your book, I had no idea how much you had to give up. Can you give me a sense of what it was like to leave one world behind for another? Yeah, so it literally meant once you stepped into the convent, you were never going to step in your family home again. You would never eat another meal with your family. And there were some sisters in those days that had to face the agonizing choice when a parent was dying, if they'd go and be with them when they were dying or if they would go and be with them after they were dead for the funeral. It also was a life where you give over your will and you were going to find the will of God strictly by being obedient to your superiors. Mm. Obedience was the highest, highest virtue. And so it didn't matter what work you did, as long as you were doing it in obedience. So if you were mopping a floor or you were writing a book or you were teaching a class, it kind of was all the same because yeah. you were doing God's will through obedience. So when Vatican II happened, Kate, nobody took the reforms of Vatican II more seriously than the Catholic nuns. Mm. And everything in our life changed because it was away from you listen to one superior and there you know the will of God to discerning the needs of the world and your own gifts and what it is that you were called to do. You know, Vatican II might not be a familiar term for some people. Would you mind just giving a little explanation of, of what that was and, and why it changed the order of your religious life? It was the first Worldwide Council of the Catholic Church, called by Pope John the Twenty-Third, a little roly-poly, older pope. Yeah. It was the first time the Catholic Church had a council, not to condemn the heresy of other people, but to look at the modern world 
and to see how we could better respond to the needs of the modern world. Mm -hmm. So all the doors were open to freedom, self-development, and then the Latin American bishops coming right after Vatican II were the first to say it is the place, the prime place of the church should be to be with the poor. Mm. And so you have then this movement that happens. Uh So it was a huge change. So can you paint me a bit of a before and after? Because, you know, you had this very contemplative, rich spiritual life, but then you have this huge transformation that you describe almost like a a lightning striking. So what happened? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you have to understand the way religious life was described was you were seeking a life of perfection. Mm. And that meant a deep life of prayer. And before Vatican II, it was to do penance for the world. The vows enabled you to live very simply. You had a vow of poverty. You only had what you absolutely needed, shared everything in common. Life of obedience, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and chastity, that you would not marry to give your life over completely to Christ, to the church, to its people, really. Yeah. And so I really wanted the prayer. Mm. And now that I look, I mean, I wrote about it in a humorous way because I was so over the top on this. (laughs) Like I wanted to be like a mystic. You know, you know how the Bhagavad Gita says you never seek the fruits of your actions. Well, man, I was in it for the fruits. (laughs) Pure and simply in it for the fruits. Bring in that bushel of apples. Man, I want to be a mystic. And I had read about how St. Teresa of Avila, she was such a mystic. She'd be in the kitchen. She would start levitating near the stove. I mean, wouldn't that be great to be have such union with God that you would levitate out of your pew? Well, of course, it was filled with ego. So anyway, I prayed yeah. and I prayed, tried to be deep and all that. And then it was a real conflict for me. When the civil rights movement happened, our sisters went to Latin America, began to get involved with really poor, struggling people, and we had these huge debates in the community. Yeah. Should we be nuns for social justice? And I was taking the spiritual side, like, look, we're nuns. We're not social workers. If we help poor people stay close to God, they'll have everything they need to deal with their life, and they'll be happy with God in heaven. But I didn't know any real poor people. And we go to a conference, and I heard a talk by a nun, Sister Marie Augusta Neal, and she got me. And it was what she said about Jesus. And I'd been studying Jesus, meditating on Jesus, and she said, the line that changed my life, because I guess I was ready for it, was Jesus preached good news to the poor. But she said, integral to the good news Jesus preached to poor people is that they had dignity and they had a right not to be poor any longer, Mm. that poverty wasn't God's will. It's a human system put in place, and they have a a right to seek what is rightfully theirs. And we look at it played out in our country today, people without health care, people without affordable housing, you know, people without education. And I got it. And I moved into the St. Thomas Housing Projects in New Orleans. And that's when African-American people became my teachers about the other America when you don't have a daddy who's a lawyer and is connected to judges and religious leaders in the city. 
and you're a black kid and the police are coming after you. And I mean, I began to just shed this superficial, like supposedly virtuous life. And I realized I'm not so virtuous. I'm just so blooming protected and cushioned and resourced. And so I began to learn. And then I caught on fire. And seeing the suffering is what catches you on fire. And I call my book River of Fire. To me, fire is the image of passion. It's the image of love. And I begin the book with the epigraph of St. Bonaventure. Ask not for understanding. Ask for the fire because some things go deeper than rational understanding. You know, the question of purpose that you've, sounds like you've just been like deeply into your whole life. I think that only started mattering to me more when I started thinking about my life as limited. You know, it was easier for me Mm -hmm. just to sort of pay into ideas about like my career or my family or my life. Like it was easier just to imagine that longevity would allow me to sort of to like discover purpose along the way. Yeah. I, I don't know. When I read your book, I just, I was so struck by the way that you keep yourself, you just seem to really keep yourself awake to what each season is open to, even if you're not totally sure at first where it's going to go. Yeah, but Kate, you got to realize it was a long time waking up for me to awaken to that dimension of the gospel, (sighs) that it was more than just love your neighbor was more than just about being polite and charitable to the people around you. But New Orleans was a huge slave port. You know, they used to have an auction block for slaves right in in what we call Jackson Square. Uh, and I was oblivious. I was oblivious to white privilege. And so the waking up, I call it grace. And when you think of it, you can put yourself in a good good surroundings. You can read books. You can hang out with people that you believe are enlightened. But when we wake up from inside, it, I see it always as grace. It's always a gift. Yeah. And I was 40 years old before I woke up to realize the social justice dimension of being a follower of Christ. In 1982, you became pen pals with an inmate on death row. And you mind just giving a brief overview of this moment that really turned you toward this kind of presence with people who were on death row? Yeah, well, uh, it kind of happened by chance, accidentally, though I know that really isn't what happened. First of all, I was in the St. Thomas Housing Projects. I was waking up to human rights. I was waking up to the Bill of Rights, to to the cause and struggles of the poor. So when I got that invitation to write to Patrick Sonier on death row, I was walking on St. Andrew Street right outside a Hope House where I'd come out of the Adult Learning Center. Here's somebody from the Louisiana Coalition on Jails and Prisons. Hey, Sister Helen, he had a little clipboard. Everybody Hmm. he was bumping into, he's asking them to be part of this. You want to be a pen pal, somebody on death row? And I thought, I didn't know much about the death penalty. I didn't know much about him, but I knew this. If he's on death row, he's poor. I was there to serve poor people. And truthfully, in 82, we hadn't had an execution in 20 years. There had been an unofficial moratorium. I never dreamed this person was going to be executed, much less that I'd be there. I thought 
I was just going to write letters. You know, yeah. I was an English major. I could write some nice letters, <laughs> send a few poems. And when I'm talking to university kids, uh, I say, look, you got to watch out for sneaky Jesus. I mean, <laughs> sneaky Jesus. I think I'm only writing letters. I end up with a man electrocuted. Are you kidding me? Tim Robbins loves to say, he said this in the afterword of the uh, of Dead Man Walking when we did the uh, 20 year anniversary edition. Yeah. The nun was in over her head. <laughs> and indeed, I was. I was. So I thought I was only going to be writing letters. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the first time I visited with Pat Sonier, we were exchanging letters. So I'm only, I only have his letters, and he's just saying, uh, I no one comes to see me. My mama can't come. She's mentally too fragile. She can't walk in this building where they, they're trying to kill her son. He didn't even ask me to come. Mm. But I thought of him sitting there, condemned to death, and no one to visit him. Yeah. So I just wrote him, and I said, look, I'll come see you. And he was Sneaky Jesus Part 2 because he, you have to fill out a category of visitor, like are you friend, are you wife, yeah. ex-wife? And he said, look, you're a nun. Would you be my spiritual advisor? So I said, sure, I put it in. I don't know that when they're going to kill him, everybody's going to have to leave the death house at 6 in the evening, and the only one who can be with him all the way to the end, to the execution, is the spiritual advisor who's going to be me. It was, you know... To me, the way the Holy Spirit works inside of us, yeah. when it's truly God's Spirit, it's like a flower blooming. It's not like these big dramatic jerks and dramatic turns. Yeah. It's like a, a petal comes out. You want to write a letter? Yeah, I'll write a letter. Then he writes back, and I'll write. And then he has no one to visit him, so I'll go to visit him. Yeah. And then two and a half years later, there he is being killed. And I'm saying, look at me, look at my face. Grace builds inside of us. And the other thing, Kate, the huge grace is to learn to live in the present moment. When I was waiting through with Pat those days in the death house, if I let my mind go ahead, <sighs> like especially on the last day, oh, it's the morning. He's not going to die till midnight. We have the morning. Yeah. Then it was the afternoon. We had, oh, it's just 2 o'clock. Oh, it's just 5. But if I let my mind go ahead... That's right. Because grace only comes up under us in the present moment. So yeah. I learn you got to stay in the present moment. You must know that, too. You yeah. have to know that, too. I've got this friend who always says, uh, don't skip to the end. And I've yeah. always found that to be very anchoring. Because otherwise, I just want to fill it backwards and try to... Oh, Yeah have everything I need, but it's kind of more, I mean, just what you're describing. It's the sort of daily or sometimes hourly surprise of somehow having more than enough in a situation where you, you just didn't think you yeah. could have anything. Yeah. And, and, you know, anticipation, that's part of the reason that one day in this country we will recognize the death penalty as torture because when you sentence conscious, imaginative people to death, you cannot help but anticipate. Death. I mean, I had to have a root canal done one time on a Friday. Monday, I'm going through that root canal. Tuesday, yeah. I'm going through that. I was almost relieved when Friday came. And I've been with people who executed it. You can't. You have an imagination and you have consciousness. Yeah. And human beings imagine and we anticipate. And you die a thousand times before you die. But it's true for all of us. I mean, yeah. my day is going to come. 
I'm 80 years old. Mm. So just like you experienced limits when you got that stage four, my days are limited, let me. Well, I know I'm not going to live forever. I got a lot of life and energy in me. So it's to stay integral, to stay like organic, like as things unfold, to say yes to them, like to continue to accompany my man on death row now in Louisiana, to be faithful to that. Yeah. But it's also an adventure when you're always learning. Yeah. And so imagine the learning experience, Kate, of going for the first time to death row these people are considered so evil that our society believes the only thing we can do with them is to kill them. And to go and to meet this man who had indeed done an unspeakably terrible crime and to see the human being. And then what he taught me, what he taught me, what he taught me about love. Because in the last hours before he was going to be electrocuted to death. This is Patrick Sonier. And he's going, Sister Helen, are you okay? Because he was worried about me because he knew this was all trauma for me. But to have the presence to be able to care about somebody. And uh, so he said, Sister, look, I don't want you seeing this at the end. You just pray for me. Pray God holds up my legs as I walk. But you can't be there. You can't watch this. And all I knew was there's no way this man is going to be electrocuted to death by the state. Every face looking at him wants to see him die. And I said, Pat, I don't know what it's going to do to me, but you look at my face when they do this, and I'll be the face of love for you. And I was so strong, Kate. I was strong. I was there for him. But he was offering to me anybody when they're dying. I mean, I would want somebody with me that loves me when I'm dying. You want people close. And he was willing to give that up. You write, I want to care deeply for someone and hopefully have someone care deeply for me. It's not that God isn't enough. It's the opposite, really. If God truly is love, then the deeper I love the more I know God. That's one really good thing about the Christ life. It's grounded in love of flesh and blood people. I'm a massive believer in that, like that you can't just love people in general. You have to love them in particular. Yes. You found really beautiful friendships. Like your friendship with Sister Chris was really stunning to read about. I mean, everybody needs intimacy. And personal intimacy. Yeah. I mean, most people just think sexual intimacy, but there's all kinds of intimacy. Married or not, single or not. Yeah. If people don't have close friends, how can we ever really develop fully as human beings? I don't know how we do it. Yeah. That's been the big gifts of my life is is uh, those close people, the ones who know, you know, who know your absurdities. That's when you know. Like, they're really in deep. (laughs) Yeah, how true. I wish we could reverse this thing. I could interview you. (laughs) (laughs) You've been on this wild adventure of faith, and I really love the way you write about the great mystery of it. So I was wondering if you would mind reading that beautiful passage about the resurrection Uh, life. Maybe the mystery of life coming from death is not only about end of life on earth, 
but also part of our ordinary experiences of loving and losing, of feeling our life is taking shape, getting purpose, drive, zing, only to plummet, sometimes into confusion, darkness, despair, soar and plummet, soar and plummet. What does it all mean? My life is fake, hollow. Whom do I love? Who really loves me? Time is running out. We're talking resurrection, meaning life after death. What about life before death? That's so beautiful. You know what? That was graffiti on a wall in Northern Ireland. Really? Is there life before death? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this big, you know, sort of positive psychology movement where everyone wants to sort of instrumentalize faith. Like something always has to make your life quantifiably better in some way. But <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I have found that one of the richest ways is just more like an infusion, like letting the love yeah. of God and the love of others just kind of sink into your pores and then make the difference of, yeah. of life before death. Boy, that is so hard to do because, boy, we so try to control, at least I do. Yeah. <laughs> Let me lay out this agenda here. Yeah. These things I got to, but then to be open and simply to receive. You know what's been a great gift in my life, Kate, mm. is I have a little bird feeder outside my window. Yeah. And now when birds come, it's a gift because they're free. They don't have to come to your feeder. Yeah. And so you just receive them as a gift, and then they can fly off, put water there for them too. And uh, just watching birds, it's teaching me something. Yes. I've been totally enamored with birds ever since I got sick. I, I put bird feeders up everywhere oh, yes, just to see you? the little delight of it. And I can sit yeah. there no matter how sleepy or tired I am with my son and just and, and be delighted. Yeah. Oh, and a child. Oh, God, that must be something, Kate. <laughs> and to see your little child bloom. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. What a miracle. Yeah, kids are the big surprise because they are whoever they are. You just discover them. Yeah, gosh, yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for making faith into a real discovery for me. This has been an honor. Oh, it's all mutual. All the best stuff is mutual, okay? Thank you. I'm so hungry for purpose lately, just starving for it. I want to know what to do and how to do it and what even matters. Tell me if I should be quitting my job or calling my mom or seeing the pyramids. Speaking of which, I need to call my mom. But I just love how Sister Helen talks about purpose. It's gentle, like petals unraveling one at a time that point you to the gift you have to give. She knew that hers was to be the face of love as she discovered that she was capable of love that would transform her whole life. So maybe a life of faith and purpose doesn't have to mean one giant, life-altering decision. But maybe it looks like trusting sneaky Jesus to light the way one tiny yes at a time. 
So I'm praying for that kind of bravery for all of us. The gentle nudges. I can practically hear my mom saying, call me back. Oh wait, that is her. Okay, I'll talk to you later. I'm grateful for our partners and generous donors, the Lilly Endowment, the John Templeton Foundation, the Issachar Fund, North Carolina Public Radio WUNC, Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource, and Duke Divinity School, who made this episode possible. And a shout out to my super team, Beverly Abel, Jessica Ritchie, and Be the Change Revolutions. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would love to hear from you. Find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>